Hey, this is Zach. Hi, I'm David, and welcome to Square One, the show about local organizing in DC. Uh, today, we're talking about uh, abortion, uh, the fight to protect abortion services in the DC metro area. And we have two interviews coming up. Uh, first, we spoke with Travis uh, Bali from uh, NARAL Pro Choice America. In the second half, we have a great interview with uh, Dee and Emily from the DC Abortion Fund. DCAF. DCAF. Uh, they're a group we've been hoping to profile since we started this uh, this podcast. We're really happy to get them get them on the books. And uh, something that's really great about the DC Abortion Fund is you know it's right there in their name. This is the work that they do. They have a very direct, straightforward uh, scope of work, and they do it very well. And they've been around for over 20 years, uh, helping low-income women uh, get access to the abortion care that they need. Yeah, I'm, uh, we talked about this in the interview, but. Uh... I'm a big fan of how they don't like mince words about what they do. Like, look, this is what we're doing. We're going to help. Like, I, pref- I like the uh, direct honesty, refreshing. I find it very refreshing in, uh, in the world of, you know, euphemistic political doublespeak. That's just transparently bad and obvious. So just be real yeah. about what we're talking about, and I'm, I'm a big yeah. fan of it. So, well, so we got a little bit of ahead, our, ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but here we are. We got a great interview with Travis. Uh, from Nayral Pro Choice. Hope you enjoy. Let's do it. Travis, welcome to Square One. Thank you. I'm excited. I am a big fan of the podcast. <laughs> we, are, we love to hear that. <laughs> you know, we're obviously talking with you today because we want to focus on reproductive justice, and you work with a great organization, uh, Nayral. Can you tell us a little bit what is what is Nayral? Absolutely. So I have been at Nayral Pro Choice America for about six years, and we're a national organization. The way our president and I like to describe our organization is we, we don't operate, we don't have direct clinics, uh, we don't litigate, we're not in the courtrooms, we organize. We're certainly not the only organization doing organizing in the reproductive health and abortion rights movement, mm-hmm. um, but it's different when you focus specifically on organizing. You know, Planned Parenthood, for example, they, their main uh, reason in life is direct service. They do their organizing to be able to continue providing direct service care. That's so incredibly important, but we see at the local, state, and national level their work being impeded because legislators want to take away funding to, mm-hmm. for them to provide direct service, and that can take away from, their, from how much organizing they can do. Um, you look at organizations that focus at, in the courts. I mean, we see now that courts have cited tweets from the president. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you're litigating in the courts, it does put a certain constraint on how rapid response and how you can communicate with the masses and publicly when updates are happening in this, in this realm. And so it's very intentional that we focus on organizing. And the one other thing I wanted to say about NARAL Pro-Choice America is we really focus our work on reproductive freedom into four core areas. It's our blueprint, blueprint for reproductive freedom. And those four core areas are abortion access that is accessible and safe, um, access to universal and affordable birth control and contraception, so that a cost barrier or a pharmacist deciding that they don't want to provide birth control to you and not giving you any other option is not a reality that you have to face. Pregnancy non-discrimination, incredibly important. Whether you want to continue a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy, you should not be fired from your job because you're pregnant and unmarried or have an abortion. And lastly, paid parental leave. Very important because we talk a lot about the choice 
we're what most well known for being a pro-choice organization. And what does a choice mean? Well, a lot of people have the luxury of deciding whether or not they want to have children, but real people and most people, this is the biggest economic decision they will make in their life. And they need to be able to have a society that actually makes their choice possible economically and paid parental leave is integral to that. So that's how I describe Nero. Yeah, that's really great. And that was kind of actually led perfectly into my next question. Um, you use the term reproductive freedom, which I'm not sure uh, how familiar some of our listeners will be. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can kind of, and, and you, you did a nice job of kind of unpacking yeah. uh, that, I, I think. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of tie that into some of the broader um, issues of justice that, that we've talked about previously on the show yeah. um, and how, how reproductive freedom fits into some of the broader struggles for economic and social justice. Yeah, absolutely, happily. The difference between reproductive rights and freedom and reproductive justice is who is leading the fight. Mm. Reproductive justice has always been led by and informed directly by women of color and people of color. Um, reproductive rights and reproductive freedom these terms and the movements that organize around these terms have historically been white women organizations. Um, for those of you who can't see me, I work at a reproductive freedom organization and I am a person of color, a man of color. Um, and that's because a lot of organizations, even if they're not led by people of color, in the reproductive freedom movement, they're coming more to an understanding of coming to terms with the historical whiteness that has really um, silenced the leaders of so much of, of the movement to fight for greater reproductive freedom and justice and equality. So reproductive justice to me, to just define it and really drill down in it, it kind of expands from where my definition of NARAL left off. Reproductive justice is intersectional. It means that my ability to have a thriving family depends more than just a healthy pregnancy and whether or not I choose to have an abortion or to have paid parental leave. It means, will my child be safe on the streets? It means, will they be affected and be born with asthma because we live in a neighborhood that is polluted disproportionately because it's a community of color? I was born with asthma because I grew up in Queens in New York City and my family was placed uh, next to a lot of polluting industries. And so I really identify with reproductive justice, but I also am very firm in understanding that NARAL is not a reproductive justice organization. What we strive to be is to be an ally, to learn from and to follow women and organizations of color that need to be front and center. So what do you say to people who, um who kind of views issues of access to reproductive health care and abortion services as like social issues or women's issues. How do you uh, kind of counteract that, uh, you know, setting aside of these issues as important to all of us? Yeah. Well, you know, I start out with stories because I think more than stats and figures, people come to new realizations because of stories. And I, I would tell them about my mom who did not take a day off work when she was pregnant with me, gave birth to me. I was two months premature. They weren't sure if I was gonna survive. And uh, while my life hung in the balance, my mom had to go back to work just two days after giving birth because she did not have access to paid parental leave. Um, 
I want to tell another story about my mom. The only reason I'm in this work is because she came out to me as having access to abortion care. Mm. It was at a time in her life where she was getting her business started. She is now the proud owner of a hair salon, the Upper West Side of New York, that is almost as old as I am. <laughs> and, you know, she always wanted a family, and she now has three beautiful and healthy kids. Um, however, at the time that she got pregnant, she just, it was not the right time for her, and she had an abortion. And that was the first time at my then 22 years of being alive of actually meeting someone who I knew who told me that they accessed abortion care. And I was able to go past the political rhetoric and the way people talk about this issue as if women make this issue completely isolated from every other part of their life and understand that this really is one of the biggest economic decisions one will make in their lifetime even if this is not just about economics. So I think people may still feel that, oh, this is a social issue, but when they hear about my mother and what she went through and how this connects with her life, her life goals and aspirations, it really breaks down those misconceptions about the issue. Yeah. Uh, I guess that kind of brings up an interesting point that right now we are three dudes sitting around a table talking about abortion. Yeah. Um, was that kind of a... What was that decision like for you to decide to be an activist and organizer focused on uh, reproductive services for women uh, and and families? Is that was that? Uh, are there a lot of men doing what you do? You know, I think people will be shocked how many uh, how many men. It's not uh, clearly narrow per choice America has mostly women. Um, but I think people will be shocked at how many men are at NARAL. But certainly not all men, right? No, <laughs> yeah. oh my God. not all men. No, no, no. <laughs> that, would be, that would be very ridiculous. But actually, you know, I will tell you about a program we're doing. Before I get back to answering your question, yeah, yeah. we have a program called Men for Choice, and it's specifically about calling in more men into mm. this movement. I think men tend to have a majority of men let me not stereotype men tend to have a one of two different responses to when talk of abortion comes up one they are rapidly anti-choice or don't care about the issue and completely turn off like i don't want to talk about that issue or two they actually identify as pro-choice or support reproductive freedom but they don't feel it's their place as a man to to, to speak on it now, it's one thing to speak and interfere with someone's decision, but it's another thing to be an ally. Um, and we understand at NARAL that, look, a majority of people in positions of influence, in the media, in culture, in our politics, are still majority men. And as we work towards gender parity and greater reproductive freedoms and freedoms in general for women, men are going to have to step up and be involved. And so... How I got to NARAL actually is, actually it's very personal and I'm happy to share it. I actually identify as a queer man and working in the LGBT movement was too personal for me. This was back when, right after 2004, when we saw so many anti-marriage equality amendments pass across the country, we were facing a lot of losses. It was not sexy to be in the LGBT movement. This was a very different time. And it was too draining for me. I couldn't do it. Um, I needed an issue that felt that I could be giving back to those that I loved, like my mom. 
and but still provided a little bit more distance for me emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that's where Nayral Purchase America came in. They got me involved in my first canvas, my first phone bank, my first paid internship. <laughs> um, you know, Nayral Purchase America really was there for me to, with programs like Men for Choice, although it didn't exist then, programs that called in people from different backgrounds, including men, to say, hey, you are invested in this. Yeah get involved, step up, mm. and I did. Well, I think now that we're talking about men, it's an appropriate transition to talk about the primary threats to reproductive uh, freedom <laughs> facing our country. Uh, and so you, as, as, a, as a national hashtag organizer. not all men. Hashtag <laughs> not all men. Um, uh, yeah, but so you, as a national organizer, focusing here on the, the mid-Atlantic area, um, what do you guys see as kind of those primary threats um, that are facing uh, you know, folks in the fight for reproductive justice, reproductive freedom. Yeah, um, so many threats, <laughs> so many threats. Um, I'm going to start with one that may not be completely intuitive. Um, we, as a movement, have a white women's problem. Um, we have had so many communities of color, especially black women, overperform when it comes to voting. They're voting disproportionately beyond the populist, the population numbers that they make up in society. Mm-hmm. Um, our board chair, who's an amazing woman, happens to be a woman of color, she always says, I got my people in line, what about you? <laughs> and I think that's very important for historically white organizations to hear, is communities of color are very organized. In fact, we're so organized that one of the top issues the Republicans have thrown against us at the local, state, and national level and not just Republicans, I'll say, Democrats in states like New York have made voting less accessible mm. and in, in many cases have suppressed the votes. Um, they understand that we have a rising coalition, but at the same time, we have left-leaning progressive whites who need to get more in the game. Yeah. And you know, as a, historic, as a historically white women's organization, we understand that we need to look at this issue, look at these issues in much more intersectional ways to understand that our members may need work when it comes to seeing how our issue, the issue that they care about, intersects with Black Lives Matter, with racial equality, with immigration. That's why we have supporting statements in support of immigration equality, LGBT equality. We are trying to build that bridge that frankly is holding back the progressive movement. So you know, it's funny when you said what is the biggest threat, I didn't go first to Donald Trump and Republicans. Um, And I want to say because at NARAL and myself, we're invested in the long-term chasms that we need to close to really um, move forward as a movement. Now I will talk about Donald Trump and the (laughs) Republicans a little bit. Okay. Um, And we need to talk about that because they Frankly, the best organizing that I respect is on the other side. Mm. They may do things that make me want to throw up and I disagree with, but they are amazing organizers. More Republicans pay their interns and pay their their campaign staff better than Democrats do. Mm -hmm. You know what that means? They understand that if you want talent, you have to pay talent. We have this volunteer martyr culture on the progressive movement side. That needs to change because that does not a long-term movement make. Mm. Now, saying that I respect them, their best thing that they have ever done in the past 15 years 
was to be as organized as heck in 2010, where they won all across the board and were able to draw redistricting the district lines. They got to choose their voters instead of the voters choosing them. Now, next year in 2018 and 2020 are critical because that will decide whether or not our next decade is a progressive decade or not. It is that simple. And so that's why, that's, I'm not gonna phrase it as a threat, that's the opportunity. Mm. That's the opportunity right there. So, yeah. I really appreciate that broad intersectional framing yeah. um, of how solidarity is really important in order to achieve, achieve these goals. Yeah. Um, so since so many of these threats are coming from at the state level around the country, uh, what, what can we really do you know, sitting in DC? What is something that uh, you see as opportunities for, for folks who are listening to this podcast right now? Absolutely. Um, People are well aware of the constraints that we have as a quote-unquote federal city without congressional representation and with a lot of congressional interference. But I'll flip it on them and I'll tell them about barriers that others, other progressives and other states are facing. I'll give the example of New York State. They have some renegade Democrats in their state Senate that are keeping control, complete control, from Democrats and progressives in that state. What does that mean? It means if Roe v. Wade were overturned at the national level, New York has no protections mm -hmm. because they can't get the laws passed because they don't fully control state government. That means that so many progressive agenda items cannot move there. In DC, we have a council that despite many qualms I have, <laughs> is one of the more progressive councils in the country. And especially now, we are seeing a coalition that is actively creating what we need to see at the national level. Mm. We are seeing a progressive part of the African-American community here partner with newer residents who are also left of center to really disrupt longstanding incumbents. I will refer you to last year when Robert White, now Councilmember White, shocked the city in winning a, uh, winning a primary against a long-term incumbent that nobody thought would lose. Um, that is the coalition in action, when we're not fighting each other, but working together with candidates that have brought us together. Robert White's message was bridging two, bridging two cities, I think, mm -hmm. I think it was. Um, and I, that spoke to me a lot, because I cross a bridge every day when I come from east of the river where mm -hmm. I live to this part of the city. And so um, to go back to what can DC do, it's what is DC doing right now? We have already done so many. We have, we have already done so much to protect our citizens even in the age of Trump and also move forward our city. We are moved forward with so, with so much more green infrastructure. We have passed IDs that protect our undocumented community. We have passed IDs that protect our trans population by uh, not uh, not requiring you either have just male or female on your on your government issued IDs. We have paid family leave while it <laughs> is a constant fight to get our council and mayor to do the right thing. Yeah. We passed the most progressive paid family leave law in the nation and we funded it. Mm -hmm. And while we're still fighting it, those are very important wins that I think should not be discounted. Um, we are a progressive laboratory and I'll say this. If Congress ever tries to interfere, you have organizations like NARAL Pro-Choice America that have stood up and will stand up to make sure that the whole nation knows 
about what's happening in D.C. Um, and I think that's important because while we sometimes feel powerless as a city, we also have very powerful allies with a national audience. And we're, we're here and we're ready. And so that's, that's the pitch I would make for what D.C. can do. It's what we're already doing. And now you need to jump in right now <laughs> to be a part of what's happening. That's right. There's a lot going on. Exactly. And I definitely agree with that. Uh, optimism and opportunity. Um, though I would say that Robert White shouldn't have voted for tax cuts for the it's wealthy. True. Anyways, yeah. that's a digression. No, <laughs> it's not. It's not actually, can I pause you for a second? Please. Um, you know, I, I, I do not think that's a digression. I think that it shows that you need to have a movement that's not married to any particular candidate. Yes. Um, it is a net win for progressives that Robert White defeated an incumbent that was more hostile mm -hmm. on a whole broad, broader range of issues. I will say it's probably a critique of where our progressive infrastructure is in the city right now that Robert White didn't feel the pressure to mm. join the four council members that courageously stood up and voted against tax cuts for the rich, even though we can't fully fund affordable housing in this city. We really have to turn the mirror on ourselves. Absolutely. And I'm not giving Robert White a complete out, but I'm saying that if we do our job right, after we've elected candidates that are more or less on our side, um, it really is a reflection of how much more infrastructure we need to build. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so I think uh, we're coming close to the end here, but I wanted to end on your campaigns that you were working on yeah. with, with uh, Nairal, um, and specifically how, how folks listening uh, can get involved. So we already talked a little bit about paid leave. I know you guys were very strongly behind that and will continue to fight yeah. um, for that campaign. Um, tell me a little bit about the uh, Hands Off My BC campaign yeah. that you guys are running. Absolutely. Well, first of, all, first of all, a quick plug. Sure. I definitely encourage folks to visit ProChoiceAmerica.org. Sign up to volunteer, and if you put your DC address, that means that you will soon be getting a personal email from myself Ooh. inviting you to our next volunteer event. It's quite so, a perk. Yep, ProChoiceAmerica.org. Click on the volunteer tab. Um, and I'll tell you about birth control access and that campaign and why we're invested in it. Mm -hmm. um, we had, when uh, Barack Obama was president and the Affordable Care Act was going on and passed, we gained one of the biggest, if not the biggest, reproductive rights win in a generation mm. or in generations. And that was no copay birth control. What does that mean? It means that uh, women no longer had to pay double to access their birth control. So if they're paying their premiums, birth control should be considered part of the basic health care package yep. that they're paying into when they pay their premiums. Before the Affordable Care Act passed, they were paying an additional copay, which could be $10, $20, $50 a month. The most effective forms of birth control, IUD, sometimes had $500 or $1,000 copays. Mm. Those are the most effective forms of birth control. Mm -hmm. So you effectively had racialized access to birth control, where those who struggled to, to pay the rent at the end of the month, if they had to give up something at the end of the month, they're probably going to give up on birth control for a month or two months. They could pay the other bills that they need to do. Um, the first year this bill was enacted, or this policy was enacted, women saved over a billion dollars. That's a billion with a B. Um, and I'll also say that communities of color and women of color have especially gained access to the more effective forms of birth control, like IUDs, that are long-acting reversible contraceptives that previously were out of reach for many, for many, especially in those communities. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I will say, what has DC done? Well, Trump has already made steps to repeal that tremendous win that we gained, and that's very sad and unfortunate. But what's great is so many states where we do have power. Let me give you an example. States are stepping up, like in Nevada, where we pressured a Republican governor to, uh, to sign into law a bill protecting birth control. Um, states like New York, they are struggling to pass and protect birth control and abortion access for their population. In D.C., that's not the case. We had the almost the entire council, I believe, pass temporary legislation protecting birth control. So that is the law now of the city for at least the next couple hundred days. Mm. We're now working to get the council to pass permanent legislation. So whatever Trump tries to do at the federal level, our residents will be protected. So that's what the campaign is. And I think, you know, that's the benefit of being in a place and recognizing that, look, we lost a lot, but we still have local and state power in many places. D.C. is one of them. Awesome. And what's the name of the website where you can sign up again? ProChoiceAmerica.org, and then click on the volunteer tab. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, Travis, thank you so much. This thank you. This has been really great. Definitely yeah. learned a lot, and thank you again for coming on our show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to hear it. Right about now, we're gonna take you from the house of Savage to the church of Savage. And we need every head to bow, every tongue to confess. Cause see children, we got a message for some of y'all out there. Take it down. It seems like all across this city, and cities just like it, there are a lot of changes that are happening. Changes that we don't always understand. Talk about it. Changes that we don't always feel too good about. Well. It's like whenever we walk up and down the streets of D.C., we barely recognize things anymore. Mm -hmm. Everywhere we go, it's food truck after food truck. Mm -hmm. Yoga studio after yoga studio. Condo after condo with exposed brick this Reclaimed with that. Well. It's small plates here, and I taste no fun to table local folk cuisine there. Mm -hmm. But see, children, your small plates will not protect you. Your condo will not protect you. Your yoga studio will not protect you. Yes, church, y'all don't hear me though. Yes. Now here's the thing: it's not that. We don't like yoga. Well. It's not that we don't like development. Yes. But we got a problem with development that doesn't benefit everybody who was already there. You better tell it. Mm -hmm. You better tell we it. We got a problem with change that we can't afford. Yes. Church. Well. We got a problem with urban pioneers mm -hmm. who want to just trace into this city and Children, we were not born with silver spoons in our mouths. We don't have a rich mommy and daddy to pay our way. We are not the heirs to great fame and fortune. We are the heir to nothing. And we may not have a whole lot, but we've got all the children.
children of the house of Savannah. We may be the heir to nothing, and we may not have a lot, but we are heirs. But we are heirs. But we are heirs, not have enough. Oh no. Alright, so you just heard part of Air to Nothing by Coop Savage and the Snips. Um, unfortunately, one of the band members moved out of town, so they actually had their last concert in June, but they're an awesome local band, and I think most of the members are still hoping to get together, uh, or stay together, and produce more music. Uh, you'll be able to find their, uh, their info and their band camp stuff in our show notes, so be sure to check them out. Um, all right, coming up next. Uh, <laughs> coming on next is, uh, yeah, so uh, we also, for a second interview today, like we mentioned a little bit in the introduction, we spoke to, uh, we spoke to Dee and Emily from DCAF. And DCAF is the DC Abortion Fund. Like their name says, they provide grants to uh, abortion services providers, so people who otherwise do not have the financial means because this, this shit is expensive. <laughs> And there's no federal funding for it because of the Hyde Amendment, uh, which we will get into. Mm -hmm. uh, they just, they give people the money they need to get this stuff done. They're a really good organization. And, uh, you know, we should, we, it's, <laughs> and they can talk about the work they're doing more than I can. So That's right. Hope you enjoy. Dee, Emily, thank you so much for joining Square One. Of course, happy we're, to be here. Huh? Yeah, we're thank really you. excited for this. Uh, the, the Square One Brain Trust are big fans of your guys' work. Uh, so we're really happy to, to feature the DC Abortion Fund today. Cool. Thank you um, so much. So I want to just start very, very generally. What is the DC Abortion Fund? Like, what, what do you guys do? So we are an all-volunteer nonprofit organization that provides grants to pregnant people in DC, Maryland, and Virginia who can't afford the full cost of an abortion. And um, we're the only organization that's solely focused on this work in D.C. Mm. And we have a lot of partner clinics that we work with. So the way we work is that we send funding directly to clinics on behalf of patients. And then they bill us in the end. So Emily can talk a lot more about that process. Yeah. But basically what we do is we're very direct service. We're all volunteer run. So everything from our case management to like billing and mailing, everything is done by volunteers. And so we are about 60 case managers strong and always growing. So, yeah. And so how, how long has DC Abortion Fund been around in DC? Um, so we've existed technically for like roughly 22 years. Wow. Um, I would say that the majority of our growth has occurred in the last 10 years from being a, a fund that, you know, funded only a couple dozen folks a year to where we are right now. 
um, has occurred over the past decade. That's, I mean, that's really impressive for an all-volunteer organization. Yeah. So yeah. great job on that. Thanks. Uh, Thank so something that you know we're so we're obviously focusing this this episode on like reproductive uh, freedom, reproductive justice broadly, and and something you know that often comes up in this area is, is how abortion care is is often framed as like a social issue or a women's issue. Um, how does your model of service really address kind of the economic element of, of abortion care? Like, why is that important for what you guys do? I think that a big thing that we really strive to remember is that people can't live full and healthy lives unless they're able to control, like, if and when they parent, and um, if they have the ability to raise those children that they choose or don't choose to have in safe and healthy environments. And that's like kind of a very big part of what reproductive justice is. And because reproductive justice as a framework is very like broad and a lot of things fall into it, we can't truly really be a reproductive justice organization because of the narrow focus of what we do. Yeah. But for a lot of the people who call us, accessing an abortion is like just like one thing that they have to deal with. Like they have so many other things yeah. that they have to worry about on a daily basis. But this kind of work that we're doing, it might be the difference between like accessing healthcare or like shutting your lights off, you know, to be able to pay that that bill. So because abortion care is so singled out, a lot of people, even if they do have insurance, they can't use it to access abortion care. And a lot of the time, people who do have kind of like economic resources and like private insurance that might cover an abortion, they might have other concerns like confidentiality that makes it hard for them to use that service because of abortion stigma and safety concerns, so like things like that. So. Just the idea of paying for an abortion is such a big burden, and I think that what we really strive to do is ease that burden for as many people as possible, but recognize that it's not the only thing that people have to worry about, and not the only thing that perpetuates that kind of inequity in society. And I, I think so. for us, I think a way in which we acknowledge that is by, um, we don't ask folks for income verification, yeah. um, which is a really big thing. And you know, it's I, I understand the reasons why people do ask for income verification, but for us, if you were taking a step to make a phone call um, just to ask for the money, that means you, you might need it. Because on paper, you may have more than the, the poverty line, which is a really flawed number um, to begin with. You may have more than that, but if you have family you're supporting overseas or even here, um, that's not a real indicator of, of what your you know economic capacity is. Yeah, and like the reality is people are calling a stranger to ask for money for an abortion and yeah. that's really hard to do and I think that what we need to work on is kind of make that easier for people and make it so that it's easier for them to kind of access this health service that is their legal right but because of our health system that's built on structural inequality, it's not always an easily accessible reality. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, your actual like practical community impact. Um, so like what happens when a woman is denied access to abortion care? And and how how many can it give give us a sense of the, the scope of work that you guys have done. How you know what are we talking about as far as dollar impact? Mm -hmm. How many women are you helping? Uh, give us a sense of that. 
So our fiscal year 2017 just ended, um, and so we're while we're still working on the stats for that, um, I can tell you um, that in 2016, for fiscal year 2016, um, we made uh, 1,300 pledges, and so a pledge is um, you know essentially like a promissory note that we sent to the clinic saying you know this person we have committed X amount of funds for them um, to come in and, and get their procedure. Um, some folks don't they don't use the promissory note, and so what that ends up in actual hard numbers is we funded over a thousand. We actually ended up funding like paying to the clinic over a thousand folks last year, um, and. This year, you know, I can say safely that it's going to be like very heavily over that 1,000 number, um, probably closer to 1,200 or 1,300, um, which really means that the demand is, you know, is not eroding in any way. Um, you know, our average pledge number is $153, so that's our average grant. Um, but that, you know, really widely varies widely. Sorry, um, we the need is great. It's not cheap, and abortion's not cheap. You know, this isn't like a oh, it's 200 bucks and it's over. Or 100 bucks and it's over. No, 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 no. It's just, this is something that it starts out expensive and then grows to be exponentially more expensive, um, you know, as as the pregnancy continues. Yeah. And I also wanted to kind of talk about why people end up needing this funding, which is for so many reasons. People come from all different walks of life, but a very large portion of our patients um, are enrolled in Medicaid. And so that means like they're already low income, but it also means that they can't use their health insurance to pay for abortion care because of a law called the Hyde Amendment. I don't know if you've already talked about this. No, 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 go ahead. But, what, what is the Hyde Amendment? So the Hyde Amendment basically bars any federal funding from being used for abortion care. And because Medicaid is um, a state federal partnership, it means that a lot of people who are enrolled in Medicaid cannot use that coverage for abortion care, except in the very limited circumstances of um, cases of rape and sexual assault, um, when the pregnant person's life is endangered by the pregnancy, um, just very limited circumstances. So sometimes states opt to use their own state dollars to use um, to pay for abortions for people who are enrolled in Medicaid, but a lot of states don't do that. And so Virginia, for example, doesn't. And Maryland does, but it's a slightly complicated program. And DC has its own restriction called the Dorian Amendment, which because we don't have budget autonomy, Congress can say that we are not allowed to make the decision to use our own local dollars to provide abortion coverage for Medicaid and release. So in um, FY16, almost three quarters of our patients who called through our DC line were enrolled in Medicaid. So it's a very big impact. Yeah, so I guess you kind of started touching on some of these, but I wonder if you can, so we talked about the Hyde Amendment, mm -hmm. uh, but what, and, and maybe just financial resources in general, but what are some other common roadblocks that prevent women from, from receiving access or receiving abortion care? Um, I can start talking about that. Yeah, you want to. yeah, um, I think that a big roadblock obviously is money, but another thing that ends up being a huge obstacle for people is just, the absence of a support network. So a lot of clinics require you to bring an escort, especially if you're opting for anesthesia and things like that. So people end up not being able to kind of get to the clinic because they don't have somebody to bring with them. 
And then there are only three or four late-term abortion providers left in the country, and one of them happens to be in our funding area. So a lot of people have to travel very great distances to go see that provider, and it's usually because of things like medical conditions and other circumstances that are very hard to deal with emotionally and also physically, and then they have to end up paying for lodging and travel and all of these other expenses come up with this already expensive abortion procedure. Yeah. And when you're getting past like the second and third trimester procedures, they end up increasing exponentially in cost every week. So it ends up being an even greater burden. And even in those cases, insurance often can't step in. Uh, so I guess we can have a little bit of real talk here. Why is it so damn hard to get an abortion? <laughs> Patriarchy, man. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot of. You mean? You, you, are you speaking like with regards to the like laws and like why are these folks like trying to legislate so heavily or like the? Okay. I think all of the above. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I just think it's really. It's easy to, 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 this is a, when you're pregnant, you are a vulnerable population and it's really easy to attack a vulnerable population. Um, do you? I also think that the way that abortion care is singled out as an extraneous service that isn't a part of healthcare makes it even easier to be like, this isn't healthcare, this is something else. Yeah. And that kind of stigma exists even in people who identify as pro-choice, you know, people don't feel comfortable with the idea of abortion, which makes it even harder to kind of push it into the hearts and minds of people yeah, absolutely. as a very important medical procedure yeah. that is safe, that is legal, that someone you love has probably had, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. so it's really, I think that there needs to be kind of culture change around how people view abortion care and how people feel about those who have had abortions. Because right now there's this othering of people who've had abortions, even though one in three people will have an abortion by age 45. So yeah. it's just really kind of, it's stigmatized both internally and externally in I think that that's something that I appreciate about your organization. Actually, is just that it's right there in your name, the BC yeah. Abortion Fund. And I, you know, even just like talking to some people who are like, like even like like young women who I've yeah. told that we're like talking to you guys, featuring you guys on the podcast, and I get like gasps. Like yeah. they're called the Abortion yeah, Fund, absolutely. which just like blows my mind. But yeah. it's that's like that's an important part of the work that you're doing is just right there in your name. Yeah, like, that's really the interesting. only service that we are able to pay for and provide. Absolutely. It's like it's what we're here for. And a lot of our supporters, they show up for abortion in a very bold and unapologetic way. Yeah. And it's kind of a really big part of like building that kind of trust, you know, in the community, being like, this is okay. Like, Absolutely. You don't have to feel bad about your abortion unless you want to. You don't have to like feel stigmatized or like there aren't people who are there for you. Like we are gonna be there for you as both a financial and like an emotional support network. Absolutely. And I think within the progressive community we 
for those of us who are like, you know, very diehard progressive, like we forget that uh, opinions on abortion really ebb and flow. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we kind of take, we kind of assume that this like Western viewpoint on abortion is like the viewpoint on abortion when that's really inaccurate. Um, you know, it's called a lot of different things in different communities and it's referred to as different things in different communities. And so I think it's really important that when we talk about abortion within our communities, we talk to people with the assumption that like, though they may be pro-choice, their kin and their children may not be. And that is not an opinion we should take for granted. We should always be reaffirming our commitment to it. Right now, it's really easy to be committed to, you know, like reproductive health because we're under this really, you know, oppressive political um, era. But, you know, DCAF had a real need to meet under the Obama administration, too. So, you know, in a couple of years, if the administration changes, that need is still going to exist. This is still something that is traded, you know, as a, as a card very frequently. Yeah. I, I guess that, that kind of actually is a nice transition back to, I want to get back to the idea of your longevity, which I, I do find really impressive. And how, so what is it that you think keeps uh, the resources that you guys are able to, to raise and, and kind of the volunteer energy that you're able to turn into growth among the organization to keep keep this, this important service going. Um, kind of maybe, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but like, like how do you guys, uh, how are you able to actually bring in the money that you use for your grants and, and keep that volunteer energy going? Absolutely. Um, I mean, on the financial aspect, I can say like the majority of our donations are made by individuals, like the stark, stark majority of our donations are made by individuals. Um, you know, I can speak to, from personal experience, I joined the DC abortion fund, um, you know, when I was young, before I before I even turned like 21. And um, when I started as a case manager, I did so because just abortion had just touched my the community that I lived in. And um, it was just always something that's sort of in the forefront of my mind. Um, and I think that a big reason why we're sort of able to sustain that support is because of people like me, because again, like that one in three statistic, like uh, people are touched by abortion and then it affects them and it affects their their lives and um, I think just talking to someone and informing them that you know that you have had an abortion or they have had an abortion is enough to sort of make them interested and, and to cultivate to plant that seed. I also think that people are angry about the way that abortion care is singled out and the way that there are so many barriers to it both legal, societal, cultural, and financial, there's so many different ways that an abortion is so hard to access. I think that for a lot of our supporters, this kind of, these barriers feel so unjust, but so acute. It's like something that we can immediately help, you know? Yes. It's like, yeah. we can't undo the systemic inequity of our health system obviously yeah. in one fell swoop but what we can do not yet not yet but we're working on Soon. it but what we can do and to work towards that goal is to take our dollars and our mouths and like just like advocate for our patients and give them give them the resources that they need to meet this very acute need. Absolutely. And just from a financial perspective, because we really are able to sort of single out, like, you know, if you donate $153, like that is the exact, you know, that is the average cost of the pledge. And that means that you are really making $153 difference. Um, and, you know, it is really important that like advocacy groups are important. Like we couldn't exist without advocacy groups that like advocate to keep clinics open. Um, but from a programmatic standpoint, we, we really do, you know, it is, you know, I'd be lying if I said it 
it wasn't an advantage to be an organization that does such direct service. Yeah. And it really, you know, makes an impact. And so Dee, we heard from Emily about why she got involved. Why, why did you get involved in DC Washington? So there's so many reasons. <laughs> um, Let's go. We got all yeah. day. I think that, so I got involved when I was still in college as well. Um, so I kind of, I was probably 19 or 20 years old, and I got involved because I actually didn't know about the Hyde Amendment, and I didn't know about all of these horrible systemic barriers that make abortion care so hard to access for people. I knew that it was hard to get an abortion. I knew it was expensive, but I didn't really understand fully at that time the extent to which the health system has made it so that some people are perceived as less than and other people are perceived as adequate simply because of the way that they're born and the circumstances that they're born into. Yeah. And I didn't have health insurance for most of my life. I think that a lot of people didn't. And so I, I'm a first generation American. I come from the AAPI, the South Asian community, and we don't talk about reproductive health. We don't talk about like sexuality. We don't talk about abortion. Like it's not, it's actually something that I don't know a lot of my community's opinion on because we actually t don't talk about it that much, you know? So kind of seeing that there are people who look like me who are passionate about this work was very motivating mm. for me, I think. And also just seeing that there need to be more dialogues and more like representation from communities of color, especially in this kind of abortion rights, abortion access movement. Because right now, it feels like a lot of communities of color aren't represented, and they also don't feel like this movement is made for them. Yeah. So I think that's kind of why I got involved and kind of what my goals are for growing decaf and making it more diverse and also making it so that people feel powerful in their healthcare choices and like some of them might show up as advocates and some of them won't and that's okay but we're all here and we're all kind of fighting for a common cause but we can always be more inclusive and more just as we do it. Absolutely. So you guys both joined up pretty pretty young. Mm -hmm. Was this like an entry point into activism for you? Was this like the first thing you really got involved in or were there other on-ramps? I was like a very riled up teenager when Bush <laughs> was like, you know, I was like, this is ridiculous, you know, and my mom is an immigrant and um, I was raised by a single mom and so this was, this is, you know, and so I like, had, I've been volunteering a lot as a teenager. I mean, I will say as an adult, like right now I do not work in the reproductive right sphere and actually decaf um, I think a sort of secondary um, benefit that decaf has for the community is we really offer a lot of volunteer opportunities for people um, and so when I had started out you know I, I had done a little bit in nonprofit accounting but not a whole whole ton um, and so I was you know kind of taken under our former treasurer's wing and I learned a lot and so for me it was actually an entry point into the like greater um, you know nonprofit financial world which was wonderful and obviously I'm still an activist I'm still very riled up yeah. none of that changed <laughs> but that was, I think, I think had, you know, Bush 2 not happened, I maybe would have been doing a little bit more of, like, walking rescue dogs and stuff and less, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that was my jam, and then he came on, and then I was like, wait a minute, gotta change this. <laughs> yeah, I think I definitely did do a lot of activist work when I was younger. I still do, obviously. But, um, and I honestly don't see this as, like, that same kind of activism, I see it as like a duty that I have because 
We fund the health care that people need and deserve, but in the midst of this unjust and unfair system that's built on systemic racism and classism and inequality and ableism and all the other forms of inequality. And so like this is the first kind of thing that I really felt like I was a huge part of, I guess, or like something that like was accessible to me because when I was doing other kind of volunteer work and activism, it was like predominantly like white upper middle class people who are running the show and like I felt like an outsider almost. And so this was my first kind of like, wait, I can do this. Like I can like lead this type of work mm -hmm. and I, I have to. This is like something I have to do, so. Awesome. So, wrapping up here, but I want to be sure that we give listeners like a clear idea about uh, like what your volunteer opportunities are, um, and then how how they can support you guys. So, you want to start just kind of describe like what are the different like you mentioned how it helped you kind of opened your eyes to the broader world of yeah. nonprofit finance and that kind yeah. of stuff. So, what are the different opportunities for people to get involved? Well, I'm obviously going to talk about the financial aspect. <laughs> um, so we have a monthly donor program that's really, really amazing. You know, to be quite frank, like we can't exist without money. Um, you know, and I know that money is not the sexiest thing to talk about, but really, like we just can't do it if we don't we don't have it. Um, so for you know, on my side, on the financial side, what I really see the greatest impact. Um, if you can't volunteer, um, really your financial donation goes very, very far with DCAP. So that's something that we always support. And monthly sustainers are wonderful because that allows me at the end of the fiscal year to go, okay, this is how many monthly donors we have. You know, I know we can at least raise this amount. You can actually budget it. Exactly, and yeah. it's amazing. Um, so I am a case manager still. I absolutely love it. And so we meet them. Can, can you the say what that means? Yeah, what does so, a case manager mean? I think that the like lifeblood of the DC abortion fund is our case management program. So those are the folks who actually call patients. We have three different lines, one for DC, one for Virginia, and one for Maryland and every other state. And that's because of the late-term abortion provider I told you about earlier. Yeah. Um, so we've got anywhere from three to six case managers on the line at any given time. And we are open 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. um, and so we always need case managers to kind of keep that lifeline going because that's the most important thing by far about the work that DCAP does. Another thing that I want to mention is that we're actually 100% volunteer run. So everything from like stuffing envelopes to mail our annual reports, to case managing, to staffing events, to like, hosting fundraisers, everything is done by volunteers. So literally, there is something for you. If you're not sure how you want to get involved, tell us what you're good at, tell us what you like to do. We need people to help with data. We need people to help with like, just kind of keeping the trains running. Like Absolutely. Every single train that yes. DCAP runs yeah. is done by volunteers. The trains must be on time. If you're really yeah. good at designing t-shirts, <laughs> let, yeah, us, let know. us know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you speak another language? We're always looking oh, for absolutely. people who can either case manage in another language or who can help us translate our materials, interpret, you know, things like that. So literally any skill will probably find a way to use it. So you could email volunteer at dcabortionfund.org or you can go to dcabortionfund.org and hit 
donate, <laughs> but also hit volunteer and you'll get set up with Or do somebody. both. Yeah, do both. Definitely yeah, do some both. of us do both. A lot of us do both. I do both. I do, do both, both also. <laughs> but um, we've definitely got something for you, so let us know. Awesome. Definitely donate. Also Please, donate. Really <laughs> also, once again. We have, we are so lucky to have such a big core of supporters. Yeah. And I think that this year's so we have a huge fundraiser every year called the Bullathon, and this year's was the biggest ever because everyone's so pissed about this new world order that we're in. <laughs> but we were able to take that money and use it in new and exciting ways to be able to fund more patients than ever and like kind of just grow decaf and make it better than it's ever been. So help us host a fundraiser. Give mm -hmm. us money. Yeah. <laughs> give us your money. If you aren't able to give that's totally fine. Volunteer. Mm -hmm. There's something for you, Great. and we're really excited to have you. So. Awesome. Well, Dee, Emily, this was really fun. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on Square One. Yeah. So uh, just to wrap things up for today, uh, I want to say that there's been a lot of there's been talk floating around online of Democrats recruiting pro-life candidates to you know maybe win back some blue dog districts. I think that's Fucking stupid. Uh, this is now an explicitly rated uh, <laughs> podcast. Uh, but, you know, pregnancy, having, ch like, having children, you know, the, all this stuff is like an extreme, it's, it's labor that society has always expected women to do, which subjugates them. And it is, you know, bullshit to say that you care about women's liberation. And if you do not, like, this is the most fundamental thing, control of their bodies and like, the, and what they do with them. So, I don't want to, if you if you say if you talk about running pro life Democrats, I will be in your Twitter mentions, <laughs> and I will and I you will have to block me. <laughs> well, and you know it's this is this is a core foundation. Like if you want to be in a party that is not that doesn't embrace a woman's right to you know choose what happens with her body and to access this kind of care like there's a there's a place for you it's called the republican party exactly like, you can go there this isn't too complicated there are very clear arguments um for why uh you know reproductive uh freedom is an important essential principle um that should be embraced by anybody who considers themselves uh left progressive feminist feminist um, and reproductive justice is an important principle for anybody who is dedicated to seeking justice in our society that impacted communities need to be at the table um, and that uh, women of color have been you know leading movements since before we were born and will continue to do so and we need to learn listen and follow um, give DCA of money <laughs> yeah yeah so our, our calls to action we have a couple uh, concrete calls to action. As you heard, obviously, in the interview, DC Abortion Fund always um, is looking for resources so that they can do the good work that they do. Support them. You can find their website in our show notes. Um, also, uh, Travis and NARAL Pro-Choice America are going to be leading um, organizing efforts to support uh, strong pro-choice candidates in Virginia elections that are coming up. So there are a lot of awesome opportunities for you to get involved in phone banking, door knocking, um, just helping out with you know some campaigns that will be 
uh, really important, not just here in our region, but also nationally because of the spotlight that's going to be on Virginia. But yeah, but the, there's great opportunities for folks from D.C. to get involved as well. If, yes. Uh, if, if you're interested, and we'll, we'll include links to that as well in our show notes. Um, another exciting thing I wanted to point out, we will have a guest uh, blog post on uh, medium.com slash square one. Uh, Hannah Hawkins is going to be writing a book oh, who's review. That? Who's that? Well, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> uh, she'll write, writing, she's writing a book review about uh, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker. It's a really great book with a powerful argument um, for choice from a, an evangelical uh, doctor who delivers abortion or provides abortion care and kind of his, his journey... Um, to where he is today. It's a, I was privileged to see uh, Dr. Parker speak at Busboys and Poets a few weeks ago, and it was really uh, really wonderful to, to see him and the, the folks around him speak and make this, you know, kind of make the moral argument uh, for why, why choice is, you know, not, not something to be ashamed of. So with that, I think we can wrap up wrap yeah. up this episode yeah i think we should stop recording now. we should stop recording right. no we got to say our thank yous david oh, thank you that's right oh yeah we got to say our thank yous say thank you to anupam for our logo thank you for Corey uh for the music thank you for to decaf and Nairal pro choice for mm-hmm. speaking with us travis d and emily and thank you to coop savage and the nips i hope i'm saying your name right <laughs> but your music is awesome thank you so much bye